Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It's the last week of October. That means it's time for our spooky edition of this month in birding, where every bird mentioned will have a spooky name, like Great Blue Scarin or Mountain Boo Bird. And actually, that is way too much work for this episode, so I'm not going to do that because I'm already running out of names. Oh, Canada Ghouls. Does that do anything for you? All right, now I'm done. Uh, it's this month in birding. I'll keep this part short because the meat of the episode is the panel consisting this month of Jenny Duberstein, Nicole Jackson, and Sean Mills. What a great crew. And so scary in their knowledge and passion for birds and birding. They'll be with you after this week's scare birds. I mean rare birds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the last week of October 2021. It's been a weird rare bird year with stellar sea eagle in Texas and Inca terns in Hawaii, but we might have a new leader for the most unusual bird of the year in Quebec, where a lessons seed eater was photographed at, and please forgive my French pronunciation, Pont à Otard. Nate, that would be Pointe aux Outardes. Lessons seed eater is a highly migratory, long-distance austral migrant that breeds in Central South America and winters in the north of the continent. So it's not implausible that this is a natural vagrant, but seed eaters, with their stubby little wings, certainly seem on the surface to be a poor candidate for such extreme dispersal. Truly, though, who really knows? A couple of other things to note, just so you have all the information you can get. This isn't the first seed eater. In the Sporophila genus to be recorded in the ABA area, there are unaccepted records of the similar lined seed eater in New Hampshire in 1935 and South Padre Island, Texas in 2014. Lined seed eater is another long-distance austral migrant from South America. So I don't think it's impossible that this is a natural record, but there are certainly a lot of questions. This would be a first ABA area record and obviously a provincial first if accepted. Big if, probably. Other firsts to note this week, less ambiguous for sure. In Saskatchewan, a phanopepla in Zealandia is a provincial first and a third for Canada, yet another surprising southern vagrant for a province that has had a really nice run lately. And to the southeast, where a thick-billed longspur in Dare County, North Carolina, is that state's first record and completes the longspur slam for North Carolina. And to Georgia where a rock wren in White County in the northern part of the state is a first, and perhaps most surprisingly, is well inland. Rock wren, when it does show up in the east, does tend to be right on the shore. In any case, this site is less than 50 miles from both North and South Carolinas, which are both waiting their first record of this species. Those are the highlights in the rare bird world this week. If you want the entire roundup, check out the rare bird alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA, or you can join the ABA rare bird alert on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ABA bird alert. It is the last week of October and it's time for this month in birding and our panel this week is excited to talk birds. 
Bloomberg News for this month so far. And what a panel it is. First up in alphabetical order, my colleague at the ABA sometimes, but Sonora Joint Venture Wildlife Biologist all the time. It's Jenny Duberstein. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Nate. Hi, Sean. Hi, Nicole. Nice to see you all. Oh, you're already introducing. You're already introducing my people. Spoiler. Spoiler. All right, everyone, ignore what Jenny said. Uh, (laughs) Next up, uh, an environmental educator, Blackbirders Week stalwart, and a creator of Black and National Parks. Welcome back, Nicole Jackson. Hey, hey! Thanks for having me. Good to have you back. And last, his show, Foulmouth's Birding Podcast, might be on hiatus, but thankfully that doesn't apply to other birding podcast appearances. Hello again, Sean Milnes. <laughs> it's good to be back on the air. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to give you too much trouble. I, I understand more than most. Like more the, tr- feeding- the more trouble, the better. Truthfully, <laughs> I know what it's like to like feed the beast of content and and never feel like it's completely satisfied. Now, yeah, I feel you. I know it is, <laughs> but I'm glad you're back to talk birds. We give you oh, the opportunity to talk a few birds. Super excited! Cool. Um, before we jump into the discussion, um, I want to ask y'all how how's your fall been? Have you seen anything interesting in October? I actually got to witness uh, with OSU Ornithology Club here in Ohio. Oh, cool! Um, black-throated green warbler. That's a good-looking one too. Yeah, it seems like it's. I don't know. It's this is kind of like the highlight of my month my fall so far um just because i haven't been out as much and i hear you being able to have that experience has been awesome so i hear you for sure definitely a highlight for me here in tucson where i live um it's kind of neat because the 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 winter stuff is starting to show up but all the migrants haven't left yet and so i'll go out for a run in the morning and there's white crown sparrows all over the place but then like i'll see a a nighthawk swoop by or something like that so it's sort of cool to kind of feel like we're on the cusp and it feels that way with the temperatures too where it's finally starting to cool down yeah. here yeah and uh everybody's breathing a sigh of relief i think <laughs> or at least i am <laughs> right it must be easier to run at least definitely well the northeast is finally getting hit with it's like cool down or in like the 50s right now so oh, we're starting jealous. to see that real change sparrows are in like the yeah. fall uh uh, Connecticut, especially, started just caught up to the the fall rarity scene. Luckily, I'd seen most of them, um, but I did miss a black throated gray warbler. That would have been a state and life listed bird. Oh, we were in Portland, Maine. They got the rare bird alert over text, and like oh, yeah. a thousand of my friends okay. texting me. I'm like, "Yep, yep, enjoy." <laughs> How pictures. far away was it from your regular home? I guess nothing's uh, all that far away from anywhere else in Connecticut. Yeah, it's about an hour. It's at Hammonasset yeah. State Park, if anybody is familiar. It's the, a migrant trap for sure. So yeah, yeah. no surprise. Yeah, we had a, we had a Says Phoebe in my home county uh, this week. Uh, that was very exciting. It's actually the second one for the state in the fall. And so uh, I, I went out to see it because uh, it was a first county record. And uh, there's a lot of kind of local birders around from the Triangle and stuff. So it was kind of cool to to run into some people again and and talk birds in the field with friends like you do at like stakeouts and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, for always sure. Fun. I also discovered halfway around the path that I'd run that my camera battery was dead, so I didn't get any didn't get any photos. But uh, there, there's a lot of photos on on uh, eBirds, so it's not like I would have really added a whole lot. Um, <laughs> so, but but it's good. There's a lot of good birds around. It's a really fun time of year. This kind of October November rarity season for a lot of a lot of the continent is really exciting. 
Yes. Can I add that I totally missed something so awesome that happened? Oh, yeah, please. Week. Um, <laughs> my trip to Ithaca, to Cornell. Oh, cool. <laughs> to the mothership. <laughs> yes. Yes. So um, since April of uh, this year, I've been working on an online course with some of the Cornell staff. Oh, cool. So that will be um, super excited about this. That will be launched in um, spring of next year. So I went to Ithaca, the campus, Cornell campus, to do some filming for um, the online course itself. And that was really fun. That's my, actually my first time going to Ithaca yeah, um, and been. even visiting Cornell University. And I got to do some awesome birding with Isaiah Scott, who is a freshman um, at Cornell. We got to see a black pole, um, black pole warbler, Tennessee, and a magnolia. Oh, yeah. Um, those are kind of lingers. That time. So, yeah. I had so much fun doing that. So that was our first time meeting in person. We've actually just been interacting on social media. So I actually got to meet up with him in person and bird watch with him during my time in Ithaca. So that's really cool. We'll have to be uh, on the lookout for that program out of Cornell uh, yes. next spring and uh, and plug that. Yes. And this this will be focused on kids and adults. So working together to oh, great. create yeah. some, some nature birding experiences. Very nice. Um, I will say that one thing I did not see were a bunch of uh, escaped large raptors. That's my segue into the first news item. It's a little awkward. I apologize for that. But uh, that yeah. really well done. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm a professional. So uh, <laughs> this month had a couple couple stories of escaped birds from from captivity in, in Pittsburgh. The National Aviary lost a stellar sea eagle. Uh, which led to some really delightful photos of a massive sea eagle like sitting in the middle of a street nonchalantly, which was really kind of neat. Um, but it was it was recaptured after several days at large. And in Minnesota, a Eurasian eagle owl got away from the Minnesota Zoo, and there were photos of it as well, uh, less delightful. Uh, it had evidently captured and eaten an outdoor cat. So keep your cats indoors, folks. Um, <laughs> the story does not have such a happy ending, sadly. The owl was discovered near a road. It had been struck by a car after a few days, and it, and it eventually died. Um, in that situation, I certainly feel most for the owl's handlers. Certainly accidents happen, but um, they, they probably feel really bad about that. But have you, have you ever seen any sort of obviously escaped birds like this. I'm imagining what it would be like to be birding in Pittsburgh and not know about the escaped stellar sea eagle and like see a stellar sea eagle fly over. That would be a pretty, pretty wild birding experience. I personally haven't, but here in Tucson, um, there's a, a place called the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum oh, yeah. that has mm -hmm. a, a raptor free flight program. And a few years ago, it feels like it just happened, but then there was the pandemic. So at least two years ago, three years ago, um, I can't remember what bird one of their birds escaped it might have been a harris's hawk it was something that that wasn't yeah that's you know their birds there. are sonoran desert birds <laughs> yeah. yeah but it was on the loose for a long time and for yeah. i mean for a week or two and it was much like the stellar sea eagle a lot less um out of context but the community kind of came together to say like oh i saw it here i saw it there yeah. and they eventually brought it back home yeah that's pretty wild though i imagine it would be tough to find uh the harris's hawk considering how many Harris's hawks there are kind of flying around in that, that part of yes. the world. I mean, I, maybe it wasn't a Harris's hawk. The other piece is that they, um, yeah, the way that they do their their program at the Desert Museum, mm. like they, the birds don't have jesses on their legs. Oh, oh. And so it, it right. looks it looks a lot more like a wild bird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It was interesting. <laughs> 
I've never seen anything like big escaped or anything like that. The only we just get those nagging like listserv emails and eBird updates when people list like some kind of odd canary, like yellow fronted canary <laughs> or like yeah. something like that. And they make we we had one recently was an argument for a hurricane. A hurricane blew a yellow fronted canary into Connecticut, which <laughs> just sure did. I mean, I've I've been surprised by that sort of thing yeah. before, but that does seem a little bit out there. <laughs> yeah, same for me. I haven't witnessed that. Usually, it's it's a miss. Uh, it's not identified correctly. Sometimes people mm-hmm. see the American goldfinches and think they're oh, canaries. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, that's, no, that's not a wild bird. It's or it is a wild bird, but it hasn't escaped from anywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, had, we had a situation at the North Carolina Zoo a few years ago where a secretary bird, a pair of secretary birds actually got out of a, an enclosure um, that was improperly closed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there was wow. like 30 mile per hour winds. So it blew open It's one of those kind of freak accident wow. sort of things. But apparently they were kind of wandering around this wooded area near the zoo. Uh, for most of the summer, and they couldn't recapture them. But apparently, they like did a real number on the local gray squirrel and uh, black rat snake population. Oh wow! Because one of them was wild captured, so it was like, yeah, finally back. <laughs> Let's tear up some gray squirrels. Poor squirrels. <laughs> yeah, poor squirrels. Poor secretary birds. Unfortunately, they didn't get back. But uh, yeah, I-, I almost would have twitched that one, even though I knew it was escaped just to see a secretary bird in the wild worth it that's interesting interesting ethics if it's escaped but it was captured from the wild and yeah. escaped back to the wild <laughs> right. it's, is it's it back. that's a good question <laughs> it's exhibiting natural behavior <laughs> totally maybe it had totally. a purpose all along it knew that's the bigger right. picture snakes are snakes wherever you go though and they, <laughs> they, they know what to do when they see one that's for sure it's a developed palette for <laughs> north american snakes thinking a little bit more about this just in terms of wanting to practice more of birding by ear mm-hmm. um, and the wonderful story um, that involved a nature sound recordist and birder uh, by the name of Juan Pablo Colasso. I hope I'm pronouncing that last name right. Um, but he released the first sonar map of the ecosystems in Uruguay. And that's something I'm like really fascinated by just because I know um with, with bird watching, we're so used to the visuals of, of mm-hmm. birds and how to ID them. Um, but you don't hear very much um, of the importance of birding by ear and what that looks like. Um, or sorry, what that sounds like. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, when you're exploring uh, different areas, um, specifically, this was done in, in South America. He talked about his interests um, in being able to record uh, these beautiful bird sounds calls um, just from his childhood experiences um, and the places that he's been, but also being able to teach others um, how to pay attention to the calls. Um, he actually was born um, blind, but helping others um, really focus and hone in on the sounds uh, versus yeah. the, just the visuals. That's something that very much intrigues me. I'm still learning a lot about that, especially growing up um in inner city Cleveland, um, always hearing birds around growing up, crows, uh, gulls, uh, robins, but never really like taking the time to like, just listen to them, but just seeing them. So something different, different experience. Uh, But it speaks to the importance of of understanding how um, people with disabilities receive uh, nature as well. Mm -hmm. 
some some great comments. I thought some of the stuff that was really interesting about this when he said that, you know, he goes to new places and he hires a guide and the guide takes him to the to see all the like colorful birds like tanagers and hummingbirds and and those are not the ones he's interested in. He wants the birds with the interesting sounds. Um yeah, you're you're totally right um that we're a very visual hobby, right? Bird watching mm-hmm. after all. Um but like, there's so many ways to experience birds that are not just looking at them through binoculars. Well, and I think that that's a really, that's an important point coming on the heels of Birdability Week, which sure, was just absolutely. last week, yep. right? And and this idea, even that we call it bird watching, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's kind of problematic that you don't yeah. have to see yeah. birds with your eyes to be able to enjoy them. Yeah, there was a sentence, I jotted it down at the end of that article. He said, listening helps us understand what surrounds us. And I thought that was just so beautiful and it, you know, transcends birds. It's just true mm-hmm. about, you know, being a, a citizen of this planet or a human being or whatever, just that the listening helps us understand. I, I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, I very much lo- love that part for that reason, the layers that um, of joy, I think that it mm-hmm. brings. Um, and again, him referencing um, the memories of his childhood. I think it takes us back to those places of of memory, um, of joy, but also sorrow because he realized the different the changes um, from mm-hmm. when he was younger to to now. How things sound so very different. It resonated with me the coming off of birdability week as well. And my one of the things I think living in the Northeast, everything's pretty packed, and a lot of the hot spots can be pretty packed and. For me, the like sometimes that can be very overwhelming, and so I spend a lot of time by myself birding or like with one other person. And in the Northeast, we're in like this low, dense, deciduous canopy most of the time, which makes it pretty difficult after the first or second good rain in spring migration to start to like bird by sight yeah. <laughs> in a lot of situations. So it's it was like a really good excuse for me to get better, like refine my birding by ear skill and i often now find myself leaving him at home because that soundscape i I, it's like you can sort of figure out like so much more about where they're living and what they're doing and where they're doing it just by sort of listening to what's where and things like that it's a really interesting way to tackle a day of birding it switches things up and the the article just sort of was like oh <laughs> this is this is like something more people need to do i think just because we need it birdability shows right yeah we need it he's talked about like enjoying the songs of the less colorful wrens and thrushes um it is funny like everyone everyone loves a good uh painted bunting or a baltimore oriole or a or a broad-billed hummingbird or some other spectacular bird like that but i i think the more we focus on some of those really wonderful um, songs of birds like thrushes and wrens are, are such an amazing example. They, they all have incredible sounds. And uh, the ones that he, he, um, he mentioned here, the, the chestnut-breasted wren in particular, yeah. was one that I got to hear when I was in, in Columbia last, earlier this year. And uh, it's, it's such an amazing song that sounds like a, a kid swinging on a rusty swing set. It's like this... I, I can't do it, but it's, it's, um, it's really, it's really cool sounding bird. And when you look at it, it's, I mean, it's interesting and all, but there's not a lot going on. Um, but that song is just so evocative and loud and you're in this, it's really very much, um, uh, of a place, this, uh, you know, montane forest in South America. It's, and it's just this loud piercing song that kind of rings out. Um, I mean, sounds, sounds have a way of really reaching us, uh, in ways that, that, 
even sight might not be able to just because you can mm-hmm. kind of let the sound kind of wash over you. Same way smells and tastes and stuff are, are evocative of, of their past, as you said, Nicole. Yeah. It's like learning a second language. It really is. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. yeah. And he talked a lot about that too, and just how he learned um, his connection with music, um, mm-hmm. listening to tones. But also, I think I, I would disagree with you. Yeah, go for <laughs> about it. About how this bird looks. I think um, it looks striking. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I love the colors and the fact that it has a blue eye ring. It does have a blue eye ring. That is cool. Yeah. Uh, draws me in. That's my yeah. favorite color. That's only the reason I'm saying that. I, um, it's, it's a neat bird. I, like, I won't, I won't deny. But like the song is like the thing with it. Like the song is this really incredible thing. But yeah. Relatively. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to come at me with something else, but I'll, I'll happily agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> well, I think I think this is the, the cat bird, but that's just me. Oh, yeah. It does kind of look like a cat. It does have a cat birdie look. I and feel it, like it, the, 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 the breasty color. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always excited to see that. On yeah. Oh, for, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think it's like a little Easter egg. Like, ooh, yeah. I wasn't oh. expecting to see that. That's really cool. <laughs> Fine. You're wrong, Nate. I'm, I'm Accept wrong. it. <laughs> yeah. it's, a neat, it's a neat bird. It's a neat. This is also interesting just because it made me think about how much noise pollution we have. Yeah. And in, in urban environments specifically. Um, and that's something that for sure frustrates me when I'm out birding. And you mentioned that, Sean, being out by yourself and, and bird watching and being able to tune out that stuff, it, it's even like more difficult and, and frustrating. Yeah. So that's one of the, you know, when, when the pandemic started and everything shut down all at once, it was interesting to hear people talking about that and how, you know, the noise pollution was lessened and suddenly the birds sounded louder or mm-hmm. more prominent and, and whether or not that was real. And it turns out it might be a little, a little real. There was that study that came out last month that we talked about at the last month's this month in birding about, you know, the anthropause so-called anthropause kind of was good for a lot of bird species. Um, but I also think there was something to the fact that people just notice stuff more when there's not, when there's no background noise. Wasn't there a study, this is several years ago, I thought somebody looked at bird song in urban areas versus non-urban areas and the species, the same species that lived closer to sound sang louder. They oh, there was, it was with a, evolved. it was like a white crowned sparrow study, yeah. if I recall correctly. It was with, mm-hmm. um, they were in California. It was, um, yeah. And the, the ones in the urban areas sing louder, but their songs are simpler. Like they don't do as much kind of warbly trilly stuff as the ones in the rural areas. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't cut through the background noise. Yeah. Yeah. Sound is sound really affects birds in ways that we wouldn't really expect. I'm here to talk about trash with you this month in birding um <laughs> love love talking about trash not trash birds like actual not trash, trash. Birds, actual trash <laughs> birding oh, in landfills man. yeah how many of us have ever birded in a landfill and had an amazing if smelly experience there i mean i certainly uh, yeah. have yeah, right yeah. here yeah yeah yep. Yep. So some researchers from the University of Georgia just published a paper looking at um, species richness and diversity in landfills versus uh, uh, non-landfill sites in the same county. And they, they basically used eBird data. So they took, you know, data contributed by the birding community um, to compare, you know, are we seeing different things at landfills versus 
nearby sites that are not at landfills. And uh, it's an interesting paper, but the, you know, the take home message is that I take from this all is that let's, we need to protect as much habitat, conserve as much habitat as possible (laughs) because natural habitat is great. In the absence of that, landfills can provide important habitat. And the discussion of their paper is where it kind of got meaty. A lot of the things they said in the discussion of the paper, I agree with completely, but I, I wasn't, maybe I need to read the paper again. I wasn't quite clear how their analysis led them to some of the points in their discussion. Um, but, you know, a lot of these landfills, once they're full, they get covered over and then yep. planted with habitat on top of it. And so there's, there's a lot of potential for sort of reclaimed habitat um, at landfills. And I think this, you know, this goes for wastewater wetlands also, you know, another sort of famously wonderful um, constructed habitat that's that's great for birds. Um, yeah. And especially in light of the, you know, incredibly depressing declines um, across almost all bird groups that we see. Um, it's nice to, to think about here are some possible things that we could do to perhaps stem some of those declines. This strikes me as one of those studies that's like, we have all this eBird data, let's figure out a way to do something with it, which I'm 100% in favor of, by the way. Like, I love that people are taking this, this you know, community science, all this, this massive data set and turning it into something that is, you know, might answer an interesting question. I don't know much about the, the science-y part of it. Uh, that's not really my area of expertise. The, the, the graphs look nice, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I've, I've birded landfills. They have a lot of interesting birds there. I've birded reclaimed landfills too. Like when they cap it off and they, they make it turn it into a park a lot of times, obviously there's some habitat that's better than other habitat, but any sort of natural space, any sort of green space is better than no green space. So, um, I guess you take what you can get. I think so. And one thing that's not at all touched on in this paper, but that I think is an equally important piece of that. And I'm thinking of um, the Brownsville dump in Texas Mm, in particular, which was one of the one of the landfills that they studied in this paper. Um, You know, a community has sort of embraced it, a community that is not necessarily full of birders. (laughs) <laughs> or a landfill that's full of employees who are not necessarily birders. Yeah. You drive up to the Brownsville dump and there's this gorgeous mural painted on the side of the building of a Tamalipas crow and um, all these birds at the dump. And, you know, they expect birds. Oh, you're here to see the birds. Yeah, just go up this road here. And there's, you know, forklifts moving tons and tons of trash around. And then yeah. all of the birds that people came to see. Yeah, it's it's weird. I'm always a little disappointed. There's a there's a landfill in Orange County uh, near Chapel Hill. Um, when they do the way that they manage it, it's like they're filling filling the landfill with dirt as they put the trash in. Uh, I don't know whatever they do. It means there aren't as many birds there, which I always found was very disappointing for my for my Orange County list. They do that. <laughs> so I couldn't get here. my goals. <laughs> no, they, it's the same here in Tucson in Pima County where I live. I one yeah. of the things that I do is I, I work on this turkey vulture project. I collaborate with uh, researchers from Hawk Mountain Sanctuary in Pennsylvania. And when I first started working with them, they called me up and said, can you help us find a trap site, you know, a place where vultures are coming in to feed? And they said, (laughs) you know, often dumps and landfills are really good places to go. And so I looked in the phone book and called up the, the 
landfill. And I think they hung up on me the first couple of times. I'm like, no, seriously, I really <laughs> I want to talk to you about, um, you know, carcasses and vultures. But they do the same thing. They, they fill it up. They don't have yeah. open stuff. And so because they don't want to deal with scavengers. Right. Or they don't want that, that issue. Yeah. yeah. Modern, modern landfilling. Not good for yep. birding. Yep. Yeah, this stresses me out just because of the trash factor. I don't, this is, I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it's an experience, <laughs> that's for sure. Be, the trash alone and thinking yeah. about birds and like, yeah, I'm, creates anxiety for me. It stinks. <laughs> it's, it's, it certainly it's, does. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the, one of the points from the paper, they looked at, um, groups of birds that you know were carnivorous birds more common at um landfills and and yes they were and so from that perspective i mean it's kind of a good thing i guess right it's sort of like recycling happening (laughs) right there in front of us live action recycling makes me feel makes me feel better about not composting everything that comes through my house like some of it that gets in the landfill (laughs) is gonna go to it's gonna be end up in the gut of a herring goal or something i don't know i don't know but the big takeaway message that i that i got from this is that you know birds need habitat people need habitat let's yes. have fewer parking lots <laughs> yeah i've birded landfills both remediated and and not and uh is that the and term in uh, wastewater i don't know yeah. Is it a term? I don't know. It sounded, it sounded Remediation yeah. of the uh, yeah, they haven't like filled it in. They haven't done any work to oh, it right yet. On. So okay. and then the 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 when nature has taken one back, the nature has remediated on its own, and it's uh it it, it it's like a whole other. It's such a cool experience because you know what it was, you know what it's underneath you. Yet I'm still like on my hands and knees just trying not to disturb like a hunting rough legged hawk because like you get yeah. such cool territory out of it like stuff that might not have been there before so yeah. kind of interesting we shouldn't make landfills but if we're going to we should make good use of them yeah yes. that's a good point got my first uh horn lark at a landfill when a I was classic landfill not bird. even bird watching <laughs> it was it wasn't it yep. was a tour but i i saw them and i was ex- super excited so yeah that's when um, i realized they are at landfills <laughs> yeah yeah anywhere where it's like cleared off they they they're they're cool with that i um the the best bird i ever saw at a landfill was a, a glaucus gull at a mm-hmm. landfill here in north carolina it's actually a pretty good bird for for the state and i i found one in the flock of massive flock of ring-billed gulls and herring gulls and lesser blackback gulls <laughs> so that, that that landfill no longer exists that has been a a capped off landfill. It's now a park, but uh, back when it was a landfill, that's where I got my Glockus goal. Well, and that was actually one of the things I feel like the, the recommendations and the discussion of this paper, you know, these are things that people should look at next are yeah. brilliant and spot on. And that's one of the things they're talking about. Like, let's look at what birds are using landfills. Let's look at mm-hmm. what birds are using them after they've been remediated um, to see how we can, create the best habitat um, that supports the most species. I like talking about hummingbirds and now I have a little bit more information to share about hummingbirds. So I feel like I'll be a better dinner party guest. So (laughs) that's why we all get into this birding thing is to have uh, pockets full of of facts that are, that we can just throw off and it's all about the banter. Be more interesting people. 
<laughs> Got to be interesting or you're so boring you get kicked out and it's totally fine either way for me. So, um, but this. I didn't want great... to be there anyway. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Uh, so this article was, uh, it is, is still about uh, hummingbirds and their sense of smell, which is not something I knew that they had. Um and the article goes over this. So this was uh, UC Riverside did a study um, where they uh, they put out two hummingbird feeders, one filled with sugar and water and the other one filled with sugar, water and a bunch of like toxins and pheromones and things that are that come from uh, possible uh, what like pre- I guess predatory insects, maybe maybe uh not necessarily predatory but certainly harmful to the uh to the hummingbird's well-being so they put these out and they found that the hummingbirds avoided the uh the venom and 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 pheromones and such to put it short to make it really short but what's cool about this is that what really drove this was uh they they never thought that they had them they thought it was just you know vultures carrying yeah um, things like that with like big olfactory bulbs and hummingbirds are so tiny like how could they have an olfactory bulb big enough to process right like i think that might have been a maybe a little bit of a weird assumption to make about them i would give them a little more credit (laughs) as they are pretty capable little things as it is so (laughs) but anyway they did find that yeah they can smell these things They, they they're not looking for uh scented flowers like uh pollinators necessarily are of the insect variety but bird pollinators like these guys are are like definitely wary of other predators that might be hanging around like a a trap for prey like and who wants to be a prey item when you're just trying to get some good nectar um so now i know that hummingbirds have like a really good sense of smell i also now and informed enough to know that where i hang my hummingbird feeders is a really bad place to do it like just <laughs> sitting in a place where there's for sure a myriad of predators around like we get tons of different stinging insects and and things like that that they just don't want to deal with and now i know why i don't huh. have hummingbirds in the summer <laughs> yeah. i think that's so interesting i used to live in a house where i shared a driveway with our neighbors and they had two or three hummingbird feeders and they would have you know 75 hummingbirds at their feeders and then across the driveway hanging from our porch we put one up and we would have like one anna's hummingbird hanging out and now i wonder <laughs> if something did not smell right yeah. House. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you talk about uh, turkey vultures. Like I remember when people were, oh yeah, turkey vultures. Vultures, they're only, they're the only birds that smell. Oh wait, we forgot about woodcocks. Woodcocks actually can smell. <laughs> actually all the shorebirds can smell now. And now it's like, now all the science that is coming out now is like, well, pretty much all birds can smell yeah. pretty well. And they all use it in various ways in there. <laughs> hey, bird physiology is so, so wild to me. Birds are just, different just totally different and they're doing things that in different ways it's just really cool examples of kind of convergent evolution Um, yeah honestly the researchers any reason all these researchers could continue to just fall short a little bit on bird biology because the banter and fodder for folks is (laughs) is endless this is like this makes for great reading and it's it's a good thought experiment and honestly it goes really really deep you know right down to just like your my grandma who just wants to see a ruby-throated hummingbird like Mm -hmm. cool maybe just like put it kind of further away from from that thing and you'll get like 10 times as many like doing our best to (laughs) help restore populations if we can (laughs) or even just enjoy hummingbirds that's there anything you can do yeah whatever you got yeah i think that's interesting just because 
of the there's I feel like there's a disconnect with how we process how nature works together. Like mm-hmm. we isolate so many things when mm-hmm. it comes to what we want to attract, whether we have a bird feeder or a hummingbird, um, or a regular bird feeder or a hummingbird feeder, that we're just looking to get the birds to come. And we don't think about all of the elements that they have to interact with before mm. they make that decision to come yeah. to the mm. feeder. Um, and that includes, you know, having to use different, their different senses. Um, yeah. I, I think that's really, really interesting. We don't really think about like what plays into <laughs> the layers yeah. of that. Oh, we tend to think that the birds are like kind of simple automatons, especially hummingbirds, because they're so little and mechanical looking like anyway. It's hard to assume that they're real, but to know that they're making these decisions based on, you know, the proximity of of flying insects or ants or whatever is is actually really interesting. And and it could mean that with a little bit of adjustment to the way we hang our hummingbird feeders, you could you could get a lot more. Like keep them away from your from your hanging flowers. Put it off Ever. to the side. Yeah. We all have to like walk outside and decide if we've made like a Cooper's Hawk, uh, like <laughs> right? buffet yeah, or not. Eat too. Realistically, <laughs> so it's like, are these? <laughs> who's gonna die today? So this is a good thing to think about. Like, are you like? I, it's horrible to think about it, but you do have to walk outside where where you put your feeder. Like, look around. Yeah. Am I gonna? Is everything gonna gonna get predated, or are they safe? Like, do they have good access to what they need? So <laughs> now you know. <laughs> Keep them away from the flying, stinging things. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean you have a bird bad, uh, a bad bird feeder. It means that you just need to. You have a great ecosystem. See, yeah, like what other things are are happening in nature that they are more in tune with than we are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel the takeaway for this for me is just sort of this reminder to not be too close minded about what we think we know. Mm, like this right. is fact. Yeah. We know that birds can't smell and so therefore put that baby bird back in the nest still put that baby bird back in the nest (laughs) they can't smell but they don't care so much exactly (laughs) right just like the things that we know are fact in our head you know facts are maybe a little bit squishy sometimes and especially in the scientific world it's always good to have a questioning mind yeah, for sure. That's what, you know, I, I have a talk that I give sometimes to bird clubs and stuff that's about like characteristics that birders have that may are applicable to your everyday life. And I think that open mind is definitely one of them, right? We're constantly learning crazy things about birds and it makes you realize you can't be too static, as you're saying, Jenny, like with anything, with whatever comes down the pike, like there's always another angle. There's always something else that you don't know that maybe you're making a decision based on uh, on incomplete information. and, and I, they, I think birders are, you know, I don't want to toot our own horn here, but I do think that <laughs> birders are, are, are good about that, just kind of generally speaking, because we know how much changes every year. Like we sort of have to be aware of taxonomic changes that happen in the birding world, splits and lumps. That shows us that, you know, the science is not settled. Our idea of what a species is, is not settled. I, I love that stuff. I love not knowing because it's like myriad opportunities to learn and mm-hmm. get little facts for your dinner parties, Sean. But uh, I think birders are good for that. And I think birding is good for that, for, for developing that part of your brain. Yeah, I think that's, that's how these, all of these things are connected that we're talking about. That, mm. that nice. change we'll is constant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to be a little bit more in tune with, with that. And um, I think going, for me, going back to that sense of wonder that we, mm-hmm. we had as children, I think it's always just opening up our minds to new and fascinating things. Mm-hmm.
So I'm going to jump right into the question of the week, uh, month rather, question of the month. This was a story that I found that I thought was just absolutely bonkers to me, which is the um, in Papua New Guinea, um, where they found that based on some older, I mean, not fossilized, older cassowary eggs they'd found, there's evidence that Papuans were domesticating cassowaries one of the most dangerous birds in the world, like famously the ones that can kill a human. The idea of like a Papuan community there with cassowaries walking through the paths like giant chickens with like razors on their feet is such a strange story to me. But it got me thinking, uh, what would be the absolute worst bird to domesticate, because I think cassowary has got to be like on the short list of terrible birds to domesticate, but it can be done. Um, so if you have any thoughts about this story about domesticated cassowaries or any ideas of well, what would be a terrible bird to domesticate, and I'm throwing it out there to the panel. I want to throw out an idea first. I think that we should do a TV show called Cassowary King. <laughs> in place of Tiger King, and just yeah. watch what happens when someone does actually yes. try to do this in our in our lifetime. I just want to throw yeah. that out there, but I feel like it could make a lot of money. <laughs> anybody want to run with it? Yeah, it's out there. Call I was Netflix. just going to say, aren't there people on TikTok that was <laughs> the woman that like the cassowary <laughs> comes up behind her and she stops it? <laughs> there. Like she has, I think they're cassowaries. I'm probably they're, not paying that close attention. Yeah. I'd be a little intimidated. That's an intimidating bird. It's intimidating. Yeah. yeah. And she puts her hand out. It like charges at her and she puts her hand out and it magically stops. Maybe yeah. they're easier to, easier to domesticate than we thought. But, uh. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this and, and of course my mind just started not answering the question that you asked but thinking okay if a chickadee was the size it. of a, if a chickadee was the size of a cassowary terrifying that would be terrifying yeah. <laughs> and then i started thinking okay what if you domesticated a greater roadrunner <laughs> and you had like a roadrunner in <laughs> your house that's what i was thinking <laughs> the roadrunner all of a sudden cool, it like actually. started thrashing your kittens to death and <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like your your pet bird like it would get in there and just like wreak <laughs> havoc yeah, yeah, that's that's where my mind went. That's yeah. oh, I now I think of the the shrike, <laughs> the uh, the northern shrike. If it was the size, be way bigger. Um, yeah, it would do some serious damage <laughs> for sure. It'd be attacking like small planes. <laughs> Can you imagine Look at that toddler on a fence? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> oh yeah, the shrike was here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to worry about. <laughs> Just run if you see a shadow. <laughs> no big deal. It's like you know, uh, in um, in in New Zealand, the first people that when the Maoris first arrived in New Zealand, there was that giant uh, eagle that was specialized to eat moa. You know, six foot tall, bipedal anything walking around is gonna be. It's gonna be. It could be rough. You gotta watch out. No, I feel like no. this is similar to whatever the pitch meeting was for movies like Snakes on a Plane or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Wait, a strike, except for. <laughs> except it's gigantic. It's gigantic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they did that with the the shark. What is it? Sharknado. Like, right. I'm right. sure yeah. they could do that with birds. We yeah. have something here. I, yeah. I think. I, I think we need yeah. to chase this down. <laughs> 
<laughs> do, you, yeah. do you have anything? Do you have anything, Sean? My, yeah, I mean, I did. <laughs> I was thinking a horrible idea to domesticate a harpy eagle for yeah. a lot of the same reasons as you know. <laughs> They yeah. eat monkeys. They get. They take down big primates and monkeys and all yeah. these right out of the. Just can you imagine? Just yeah. Like your your pet harpy got out. Oops. Oh no! <laughs> what what could go wrong? Yeah, that's just right. Everybody stay inside in the cul-de-sac. I need like thirty minutes. It'll be no. It's no big deal. Can you imagine <laughs> the next door conversations. Harpy you, eagle out. Oh if seen, gosh. please let me know. Yeah. Keep your children inside. <laughs> Who wants to look for a harpy eagle? No. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has their chain mail, right? We're good to go. Oh like that's right. <laughs> Lead boots and chain mail. I went a little bit of a different direction because, you know, you want pets to be sort of interesting. Um, if you had like a pet uh, putu mm. or putu, one, you would probably lose it a lot, especially if it was in your house. Um it would probably sit on top of lamps and uh, coat racks. I don't know if people have coat racks anymore, but it would sit on top of it and uh, you'd never find it. And uh, <laughs> But as like a plush animal, that might be kind of fun. You could pet it. They look so goofy, though, when they have their eyes open and their mouths wide open. Have you ever seen like a, a defense posture of a putu? It uh, looks like a Muppet. That's terrifying. If you, if you are looking for any kind of Halloween bird, that would definitely there be... You go. If anyone out there is a, a form of for Halloween for your costume, please send me that uh, that photo. I would be I'd be really excited about that. Especially if you're if you're a putu on a coat rack. Yeah, there you go. That's very. I think of Edgar Allan Poe for some reason. <laughs> Edgar Allan Allen Poe too. Out of, outside of the the Raven uh, poem. The yeah, the problem the Raven definitely. would not. Uh, the, the, the putu would not work because it'd be it'd be too goofy. Like a raven is sort of menacing, but a putu is just like goofy looking. Well, if it's just in a if it's in a corner, just on a coat rack, <laughs> you know, enough. eyeing you down, like I'd be yeah. terrified. I'd be if, terrified. If, if the coat rack opens its eyes, it's just a putu. It's just, it's just, it's just a putu, guys. Chill out. No big yeah. deal, guys. No, yeah. Don't scream. <laughs> This is done in an interesting Don't direction. Yeah. The harpy <laughs> eagle will get you if you scream. It's just the right. putu. No big deal. The putu and the harpy eagle are working together. I yeah. heard that there's a chickadee yeah. on its way. Yeah. <laughs> so. Cannot confirm. Oh my goodness, Ooh. I will never look at chickadees the same. <laughs> shouldn't. I have never like captured a chickadee in a in a mist net like i was part of a banding operation but they're they're really mean when you get them out of the net like they're 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 cruel 100 percent chance you're getting bit absolutely <laughs> like right in the right in the joints yeah yep. i mean and and well deserved i mean oh yeah that's mean if, if no that's true i'd bite you too I, I i wish i had the uh the bravery of a chickadee in that situation yeah. i would probably yes. kind of just go limp and pretend to be dead <laughs> Just kill deer around. That's right. <laughs> well, um, I want to thank uh, Jenny, Nicole, Sean. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we'll have, as always, links to all of everything that we talked about in the show notes, um, and as well as links to the to the cool work that y'all are doing. Um, thank you so much. Have a happy Halloween. I hope that your uh, your fall and the rest of your 2021 are great. And we'll we'll see you back here soon. Sounds great good. to be thank here. You. Nice to see yeah. you all. Thanks for having me, Nate. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. You know what you get by now. You get our magazines, you get discounts to partners. Hey, you know, the first magazine of the new year is always our Bird of the Year magazine. We have the art. We've chosen the bird. We have the artist. It's all ready to go. Uh, You can get the stickers in the January-February issue of Birding Magazine. It's very exciting. You want to get on that as soon as possible. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. If you want to help out in another less transactional way, you can leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love the feedback. It also helps others find us. Thank you all for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. That's that's Gore, like G-O-R-E. It, it, it works better when it's written out. Technical production is by John Lowry. Re, re, re. You know, like like in Psycho. <sighs> All right. Additional help comes from David Telltale Hartley and Greg Poltergeist. You can find us on aba.org on Facebook and Twitter as American Birding Evil Sorcerization. These are really getting bad. Any questions and comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swickertreat. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.